and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Coach Anson Dorrance is the head coach at the University of North Carolina's women's soccer team. And I don't think that introduction really does him justice. He's the only head coach in program history, having coached 45 seasons as the women's head coach. He graduated from North Carolina. He spent his time there. He actually coached the men's team and the women's team when he first got there. Uh, He's won over a thousand games. He's won 22, I repeat, 22 national championships. He has coached uh, some of the best soccer players of all time. He won a World Cup with the women's soccer team. So in women's soccer coaching history or from a legacy standpoint, uh, Coach Dorrance is uh, the cream of the crop. He's on the Mount Rushmore of really coaching in general, but especially in women's soccer, he's in the Soccer Hall of Fame. He's been named Coach of the Year seven times. 
the resume just goes on and on and on. So he is someone that obviously knows a lot about what it takes to build a team, to build a roster, to develop character, to develop a competitive spirit. We're going to talk a lot about collaboration and competitive spirit in this conversation. We're going to discuss leadership at nausea and at length. And you're going to find really quickly that Coach Torrance has intentional values that he uses and leverages with his team that are constantly evolving. So this is someone who has built a program, and he will continue to lead that program for the next five years as we get into in today's conversation. At the end of the day, this is someone who loves to develop humans, and he cares deeply about developing humans and thinks about developing humans all the time and is truly a lifelong learner. It was a pleasure. It was an honor to learn from him. I hope you pull out a pad of paper and a pen and start taking notes because there are just gems throughout today's conversation. So here is Coach Anson Dorrance. Coach, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've listened to you over the years on many other podcasts that I respect, and I know enough people in the soccer community to hear your name a lot uh, in the women's game and in the men's game. So I'm really excited to learn from you today. I actually thought where we'd start is the future rather than the past. I'm sure we'll talk about the past. There's enough to chew on in the past, but you just signed a five-year contract extension <laughs> and um, you're not 22 anymore. I think, I believe you're 72. Um, and look, my dad is 74 years old. He is healthy. He's sharp. He's with it. And he's also, of the opinion that our presidents of our country or our president of our country probably shouldn't be uh, in their seventies or in their eighties. And I'm not comparing coaching soccer to being the president of the United States, but I'm curious for you. Um, what does success look like over the next five years? As you sign that extension, how do you define success going forward and take us to 2028? Uh, and you feel like it's been a successful five years. What does that look like for you? Well, uh, first of all, I appreciate the question. Uh, yeah, let's start with the future. I, I like that angle. I've never uh, addressed that angle, but I think that's a great angle. Um, when uh, my athletic director approached me uh, about uh, signing another five-year, um, obviously, I'm trying to balance all the different elements uh, of my life. And one element, obviously, that's critical for all of us, uh, certainly to hit this age, is family. And uh, you know, my poor, suffering wife, who for <laughs> her entire life has had to put up with, uh, you know, uh, a soccer coach uh, that basically doesn't have weekends free, you know, for anyone that uh, understands, uh, you know, the classic Monday through Friday, nine to five, that's not a, a, a coaching life. Uh, basically, you work weekends. Uh, you work uh, also during the week. So basically, it's a seven day a week, you know, uh, 365 job. Uh, and it's just, <clears throat> it's never ending because, uh, uh, it's not really a sports season unless there's some sort of crisis you're dealing with. And the crisis just, they just rotate. And, uh, you know, uh, sometimes it's just, you know, uh, mollifying a, uh, a parent that's gone insane. Uh, sometimes it's trying to help a, a poor, you know, a young player regain confidence. Uh, sometimes it's dealing with a rash of injuries uh, as you're reconstructing your team, but also you're trying to uh, buoy the spirits of these people that have, you know, some sort of catastrophic uh, injury like an ACL. And so our uh, profession is basically fraught with crisis. Um, and so the issue that I had to sort out 
when the AD basically said, Anson, uh, you know, we'd love for you to sign another five year was how to navigate that. So obviously a part of it is, you know, chatting with your, your long suffering wife to make sure she has no issue with it. And of course she wants to uh, support whatever makes me happy, which she's done all of her life. And so, you know, once that box was checked, um, the other thing I'm doing is I'm preparing for the future. I have a great staff here. Uh, I would love for them to be extended into um, uh, the future. And so uh, more and more of uh, their time is spent on doing things I used to do. And so my top assistant, Damon Nehas, who's an absolutely brilliant coach, uh, is the my chosen successor. Does this mean, you know, the athletic director has to select whom I choose? Well, not necessarily, as we all know. Uh, the athletic director certainly has final say on who he's going to hire uh, to replace me. But I genuinely feel like I found a, uh, an extraordinary coach that, in my opinion, is one of the best uh, coaches in the country right now. In fact, if U.S. soccer had called me to say, Anson, do you mind allowing us to chat with your assistant to become the U.S. Uh, full-time, full national team coach and Olympic team coach, I would have thrown my hands back and said, yep, uh, you've picked the right one. You know, by all means, interview him. I think he's the best in the country. And so what's also happening right now in these last five years is preparing for full retirement. And so for me, that's making sure that uh, uh, we bring the people in that I think can sustain the program. Uh, and we found those people. Uh, we've got great uh, uh, coaches and administrators uh, that are a part of my program right now that I think will be a part of our future. So I'm very comfortable with where we are, but also where we're going. So for me, it's preparing myself for retirement, which is giving more and more away uh, to my staff. Uh, although that hasn't slowed down the email assault. Uh, the worst part about uh, um, being in, in a position where you're retiring within the next uh, five years is the fact that your emails don't dissipate. And I've tried every conceivable trick to figure out a way to have a staff member uh, basically clear my emails. I have not been successful. And I think that's an area I failed in because uh, coaches like Roy Williams, I don't think he ever looks at email. Um, and I don't know how he performs that trick and gets away with it in the most positive way, but he clearly has. And uh, honestly, uh, uh, I haven't managed to do that. It's amazing. My phone tells me at the end of the week how much time I've wasted on it, uh, which is basically time I'll never get back. So uh, I haven't solved all the problems of the future, but I'm certainly preparing for it right now. For me, uh, my program uh, and uh, the future of the American game, because there's another area. Obviously, I used to be a national uh, uh, leadership figure, and now I've pulled my uh, claws in, and now I just want to uh, lead the state of North Carolina and see if we can continue to develop players and also elevate our player development to production so that we can compete with the Southern Californias, you know, the uh, Dallas, Texas areas, the D.C. areas, the, you know, uh, Long Island. So hopefully uh, I can impact uh, on local player development. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I've got a, a son and a daughter that are a year apart. So they're just starting their sports journey, and they both like soccer a lot. So we might talk about U9 soccer, which uh, I think you started your career coaching U10 and a lot of other programs as well. But in my question, it was about how do you define success in the next five years? And in your answer, it was mostly about succession and retirement and sort of preparing. I didn't hear... I want to get to this many wins or I want to add another X national championships or I didn't hear 
that much about legacy. Uh, is legacy something that you think about? Are those numbers that you've already established as, you know, you're a hall of famer in your sport. How much does legacy matter to you? Actually, uh, uh, I think my legacy is secure. Um, I don't have to win another national championship to secure that legacy. I don't have to win any more games. So the number gets a little bit higher. Uh, we don't have sort of magical numbers like 800 wins in basketball uh, for anyone to sort of climb above. Uh, uh, my numbers in the game are are certainly sufficient uh, to, I guess, to be considered it uh, legacy worthy. I think the number of our national championships is also legacy worthy. So those are issues that never go through my head. What goes through my head is the quality of the experience uh, of the kids that come play for me. Uh, the, uh, I guess, the different aspects of taking over a collegiate program that my staff is currently doing. Because I've certainly backed off a lot of different elements uh, in my coaching. Uh, right now, uh, uh, Damon Nahas runs my uh, training sessions. Um, I have a goalkeeper coach named uh, Nathan Thackeray, who's the goalkeeper coach for the Carolina Courage. Uh, he basically coaches my goalkeepers in my defense. And so in terms of on the field stuff, I've got two very, very exceptional uh, coaches uh, that are doing that for me. Um, I'm obviously uh, in the, you know, continuing to raise money from every possible source position because uh, I'm still a rainmaker in terms of, you know, trying to make sure we're protected uh, I'm trying to build our operating budget endowment so that uh, when I step back, uh, we have the resources to compete at the highest level when we're competing against teams in the SEC and Big Ten that have huge uh, amount of support from their respective uh, uh, athletic departments because of the legacy and the incomes from enormous football stadiums, but also a few sports. Uh, we have 28 uh, different sports here at the University of North Carolina. Uh, and so we've got to figure out a way to share resources with our colleagues that are coaching across the, the spectrum and all the sports men and women at the University of North Carolina. And we have to do it on a very, very small budget. Um, so what are my responsibilities? Well, it's it's fundraising. It's it's filling up uh, our uh, operating budget endowment. So we have enough to basically compete with. Uh, it was interesting when uh, my athletic director uh, was hired, uh, uh, Bubba Cunningham, he came in. And he was this extraordinary idealist. And by the way, I love idealism. Um, and he came in and he basically uh, challenged all of us to be uh, uh, top three, top 10, top three in the ACC, top 10 in the country. And he promised us the quid pro quo for that would be we would also gain uh, top three in the ACC uh, support, top 10 in the country support. And I was thinking, this is extraordinary. And so uh, I was just overjoyed because we had consistently uh, been in the top three, top 10. So I was thinking, I can't wait for this enormous budget increase I was going to get because he also had the incredible courage to share where we ranked in operating budget and in salaries compared with the other 14 teams in the women's side of the ACC. And much to my understanding, but horror, we were 12th in the ACC in uh, operating budget and we were 11th in salaries. And I was thinking, gosh, I can't wait to be rich. I can't wait to have all this money to spend. And then of course, uh, he ran into the conundrum of 28 sports and not having, uh, what is Michigan's uh, football stadium? Is it 102,000 uh, uh, 102, seats in the Michigan football stadium? Uh, I think he realized that there was some sort of collision between the size of 
our football uh, attendance and uh, uh, the number of sports we had. And then all of a sudden uh, uh, he uh, opted out of the uh, top three, top 10. He just thanked me every year for finishing uh, top three and top 10. And, and that was the extent of our conversation. But uh, so here's what I've always known. I've always known that we've had to raise our own money. And so what I'm trying to do right now as uh, other very capable hands have taken over my team is to make sure uh, I'm uh, taking care of that. So uh, uh, as you can probably sense, I do a lot of public speaking. Uh, you've heard me on podcasts. Um, there's a rare podcast I will turn down. I just think uh, uh, this is an opportunity for me to practice. Uh, and so I've been able to generate income. And originally, whenever I spoke somewhere, I didn't need the income. Um, I, my, my expenses are minimal. I just like to play sports and read books. So it's not like you know, I have to, uh, you know, retire on a yacht in the Mediterranean. Uh, so I'm socking away, you know, gold bars as some of the members of Congress are doing right now. Uh, no, um, I drive a, a car the university gives me. Uh, it's a very ordinary, but very, you know, uh, wonderful car. Uh, I live in a house I've paid off for years and I don't need, you know, more land or I don't need to retire on an island somewhere. Uh, so for me, my expenses are minimal. So for years, uh, the money I made from my speaking engagements made, went right into my operating budget endowment. And now that operating budget endowment is just under $6 million. And so we've built it up. And obviously, the stock market uh, uh, has also helped us a bit. And so my uh, job right now is to make sure uh, I'm supporting that side. So when I step back, uh, that uh, hopefully Damon Nahas and uh, Nathan Thackeray and the rest of my staff are taken care of. It sounds like over the next five years, it's not a legacy play, but it's putting this program in a sustainable place that when you walk away, uh, it's in a place that outlives you. Am I am I hearing that right? Yeah. In fact, hang on a second. Let me see if this book is on my bookshelf. One second. Yeah, go for it. Actually, I can't find that book, but these are the sort of books that I was brought up reading. Uh, this is Good to Great. You know, this is uh, Jim Collins. And I read all those, you know, absolutely brilliant uh, uh, leaders. And one of my favorite books of all time was Built to Last. And uh, and I'm not going to get this entirely correct because it was so long ago when I read the book. But here's what the title reminds me of is that the truly extraordinary business leaders construct a business that can basically last forever. And lasting forever is a statement that very few businesses can actually make because we all go through cycles, we go through periods of huge success, and then uh, we have to claw our way back into respectability when things aren't going well. Uh, and Built to Last left a really positive impression on me. And uh, the impression it left on me is we have to make sure the environment that we're in is sustainable by constructing, I guess, uh, markers that will last forever. Uh, one thing that's absolutely critical for all of us in sport is uh, income. Uh, and uh, if we're not going to have uh, a sustainable income from, you know, the TV deals that our conferences sign or uh, uh, the different ways that we can uh, extract money and in athletics, it's basically two sources. It's men's football and it's men's basketball. Um, if you can't really rely on those, you've got to figure out uh, your own uh, sustainability. And for me, it was public speaking. Uh, while we were at our peak, I gave three different uh, uh, presentations uh, that, that I was paid $100,000 for. 
And I didn't need that money. I mean, again, I don't, <clears throat> I don't need a nicer car. Um, I don't need a bigger house. Um, uh, so what did I do with those three checks? I put them in my operating budget endowment. And now it's actually built pretty well. And almost every speaking engagement for years just went right into that. At first, you know, the amount of money we were generating off it, uh, and we were allowed to spend 5% uh, of the interest from the principal, uh, or actually were required to. Um, we're in a, such an incredible position now because I've dumped some of that money back in. And now for us to be in a position where we're just under 6 million, uh, our program is in pretty good shape. Um, and I'm very proud of that uh, because I was making investments in myself uh, that have paid off. And for years, uh, I didn't even turn my expenses in here at UNC. In other words, I'd go off on a recruiting trip and my wife would be waiting for me to submit my expenses and I wouldn't. And she would actually get very upset with me. Anson, this is ridiculous. And I said, honey, I'm investing in myself. I, I have confidence that we're going to be okay. Um, just let me invest in myself for us to compete at a national level uh, on a regional, you know, recruiting budget and regional budget. It's just not going to work for me. I want to be in a position where we're competing every year at the highest level. And so she trusted me. And so I invested in myself. Uh, and then the second investment was basically uh, built to last, uh, which, by the way, was also written by Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great, the book I just showed you. And so for me, uh, someone that loves reading business books, for me, it was creating something that's sustainable. So that is where my energy is right now. Not that I'm not involved in the coaching. Absolutely. I love the practices and the games and everything. But for me, I know what's most important for my staff. I'm going to stay on legacy and then we'll probably shift gears. I asked somebody in the soccer world about you and they said he loves to read. And when I believe one of his favorite books is man's search for meaning. And <laughs> so hopefully that source did me right. Uh, and so I'm curious for you as we stay in just this legacy space, uh, how does that book speak to you? And it's interesting as we're having this conversation, uh, I'm Jewish. And so Victor Frankl's journey is powerful on multiple levels for me. And uh, there's a war going on in Israel and there's like massive, massive stuff that seems heavy, uh, at least for me. And I think a lot of people that follow world events. And so I'm thinking about him in the context of this conversation and we don't need to go into geopolitics here, but I'm curious for you, what about that book spoke to you? Well, first of all, I'm a globalist. I have no wish of going into geopolitics. Uh, obviously, I have extraordinary admiration for uh, Viktor Frankl and the book he wrote. Uh, I try to uh, make sure that everyone understands once they get here to UNC that uh, my primary mission for the kids I'm coaching uh, isn't you know, to help them uh, just get to the U.S. full national team and make an Olympic roster and win championships. I think my main job is human development. And so we have 13 core values that we expect our young women to live by. And my favorite core values, honestly, are taken out of Viktor Frankl's book. And I think the ring that rules them all for me is the uh, last of the human freedoms um, thing that I stole from him. And I've got my book right in front of me right now. Uh, and the thing uh, uh, I love is this quote, and I'll read it to you because uh, I absolutely love it. And this is right out of Man's Search for Meaning. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, 
the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And there were always choices to make. Every day, every hour offered the opportunity to make a decision, a decision which determined whether or not you would not submit to those powers which threatened to rob you of your very self, your inner freedom, which determined whether or not you would become the plaything of circumstance. In the final analysis, it becomes clear that the sort of person you are is the result of an inner decision. Therefore, any man can decide that this last inner freedom cannot be lost. That last freedom, the freedom to choose your attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose your own way, is the most powerful thing, I guess, philosophy I can extend to any player I coach. Because the thing that's interesting about Viktor Frankl, and I know uh, I'm preaching to the choir and explaining to, to you the, the, the source of uh, his understanding from this book. He's a concentration uh, camp survivor. Everything he loved, with the exception of one sister, is murdered in the camps. And yet he had a positive attitude about life. In a circumstance like that, if you can maintain a positive attitude in this gilded environment I'm coaching in right now, Surely all of you guys, my players, can have a positive attitude. If the worst thing that's happening in your life is your boyfriend has forgotten to text you back from something you sent him 15 minutes ago, if that's the biggest stress in your life, you know, please understand uh, that uh, there's a lot more <laughs> that you should be able to put up with. And so for me, uh, the sort of crises that the typical student athlete has to deal with are nowhere near what Viktor Frankl uh, basically endured. And yet he had a positive attitude. And yet we're becoming so fragile right now uh, as a collection of student athletes. We're becoming so uh, mentally, uh, I just, just lack of confidence in the way we're living. And I just really feel for uh, where our culture is right now. We're becoming so extraordinarily soft. And I think one of the final bastions uh, in the effort to try to get people to adulthood is sport. Uh, because right now, I think parents are all uh, programmed to make sure their kids um, don't suffer. And so what they're protecting them from is they're protecting them from the very elements in their lives that will help them grow. Parents are protecting their kids from failure because they don't want their kids to experience pain. Parents are protecting their kids from accountability God forbid that uh, that they need to be provided excuses by the parent for why they failed to protect them from the fact that, you know what, maybe you just didn't do enough. Uh, maybe uh, you've got to be a little bit grittier. Maybe you've got to get off, off the canvas and declare that you're going to be okay. Because uh, what's happening right now is the opposite. And it's really interesting. One of the great privileges of working at a, a great university is the resources that we're all um, extended to on a regular basis. And every five years, my athletic director brings in the local, you know, sociologist emeritus to lecture to us. And the one I remember most clearly was one that was brought in in 2012. And the reason I'll never forget this is his first slide. His first slide had my high school graduation date on it. It was 1969. So the year is 1969, and this kid is coming home from school with all Fs on his report card and the parents are screaming at the kid. Then the next PowerPoint slide shifted to the year he was speaking to us from, which was 2012. And now the kid's coming home from school, and this is now in 2012. Whereas in you know 1969, the parents were screaming at the teacher, 
Now, oh, I'm sorry, screaming at the kid. Now, all of a sudden in 2012, the parents are screaming at the teacher. So it's the teacher's fault. Their kids have failed in everything. And so we're feeling the wrath of the parents right now because any sort of issue their kid has certainly couldn't be the kid's fault. It's entirely our fault. And God forbid this poor you know, kid has to be responsible for failure. No, no, no. My kid is never going to experience failure. All they're going to experience is self-esteem. And as a result, we're stripping our kids of the very weapons uh, that could sustain them through failure and help them to progress to adulthood. Uh, the resilience quality that I think is so incredibly valuable that they live in the real sports environment where, yep, guess what? You were beaten. You weren't good enough. You have to decide. You're going to work harder uh, or you're going to quit. And then these are critical decisions our kids have to make. All right. There's a bunch of stuff I want to unpack there. So this may not end in a question, but I know you'll be able to riff with me even if I don't end up asking you a question. But I want to capture some of what you talked about. There were five main ingredients that I heard in what you talked about. I'll work backwards. Uh, failure. And I mentioned I'm coaching or helping with an under nine soccer team. I like to think of myself more as the general manager because my soccer knowledge is just pretty, pretty minimal. So I have a young former college soccer player who's helping me out and, and coaching the kids, but we have lost every single game this year. And I think our closest game was five, two. Uh, we're also playing up a bit uh, because I wanted my kid to be able to play with his friends and to be able to play with kids in his grade and the grade Low, uh, sorry, in his grade and the ages are different uh, in the grade and in soccer, you usually have to play with your birth year. So I found this league that he is able to play with his friends and enjoy it. Um, and as a result, like a lot of the kids are a year and a half younger than the other kids. But amazingly, I thought the parents were going to come for me because every game they're just getting their asses kicked. And I keep communicating with them and say, hey, this is about learning, growing, having fun, enjoying. Uh, the kids are trying their hardest. And by the way, at the end of the game, the people that are most upset are the parents. Like the kids are upset for 30 seconds. Then they get in the car and then we're talking about fantasy football or whatever else we're we're going to talk about. So um, I want, failure to me, that piece that you're talking about, you mentioned the very top that part of your job is still if someone's struggling with confidence i need to help them out and figure out how to help them i think one of the mistakes we make is to think that confidence just comes from success and to me if it only comes from success then it's going to be very fragile because then when you lose and you need success that confidence is going to be it's not going to be there if you can be confident even when you're struggling and still have a belief in yourself that you're going to figure it out way more powerful than just basing it off of winning. So that's something that we'll probably unpack together. The second is grit. Uh, you talk about grit, Angela Duckworth's work, passion and perseverance for long-term goals, and you're sort of identifying grit. Um, and then there was another piece in there about perspective taking. And hey, if you just broke up with your boyfriend or girlfriend, hey, maybe have some perspective on where you're at and what this is in the span of your life and the power of perspective. And then the last two pieces, going back to Viktor Frankl, are working from the inside out and also having gratitude. And I say those last two with a heart that uh, I think of my grandma, who was a Holocaust survivor. Two brothers were murdered, family dispersed. Uh, some of them went to Israel. She was fortunate to go on a boat by herself with nothing to uh, to um, New York. And 
my grandma who saw the worst in humanity and was in a concentration camp. And I mean, just atrocities that she witnessed was so grateful to be an American and lift her life out of gratitude for surviving rather than bitterness for what Hitler and the Nazis did to her and her family. And she has this story that she tells when she's coming over uh, and she's about to get to Ellis Island where she sees the Statue of Liberty. And she says to a soldier in her broken English, or sorry, the soldier says to her, uh, ma'am, you have no idea how happy I am to see that lady again. And my grandma responds to the soldier, no, sir, you have no idea how happy I am to see that lady. And so there is a perspective there that is one of gratitude. And I would imagine when people come to North Carolina to play soccer, they're the best in their region, potentially. And there needs to be an attitude of gratitude instead of an attitude of entitlement. And if you have an attitude of entitlement, that's going to be very hard to coach um, and very hard to work against. So I wanted to capture those. It was gratitude inside out, perspective, taking grit and failure and sort of leveraging failure for growth and to actually build confidence. I said there wasn't probably going to be a question there. So I'm curious for you yeah. as I'm talking, what resonates with you? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, this is interesting. I'm trying to get my light back on in my office. So yeah, hang on yeah don't night. worry about the light from my perspective. It's oh, like so you're okay. Well, then let me, uh, let me yeah. read this to you. This is our 13th core value. This was added uh, by my leadership council, and I love it. And so uh, uh, the core value is about uh, being accountable. And I'm going to read the whole thing. There's going to be a quote in there. Uh, but I really like this first part when it talks about failure. So accountable. This is the biggest challenge for the millennials. Now is the period to escape the protections of loving parents who don't want you to get hurt. And we talk about their experience here at UNC. You have four years to get ready for the chaos of the universe. Mark Cohen, an award-winning UNC assistant professor of English and comparative literature, when asked, who is the best teacher you ever had and why, said this. The best teacher I've ever had is failure. Samuel Beckett said it best, ever tried, ever failed. No matter, try again, fail again, fail better. So this gets to your team. Yeah, there's no issue with them failing and failing and failing, but let's make sure they're failing better. Let's make sure they connect one more pass in the course of the game than they did in the previous game. And then they've improved. So the whole idea is about what I call living on a never ending ascension. You can be failing and failing and failing and following this Samuel Beckett quote about ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again. He says, fail again, fail better. So I think that's the key. The key is to basically be falling forward and basically getting better and better and better. So work harder, commit yourself more. If you have any sort of data collection, collect the data that tells you we are getting better and build on that. Uh, so, but also have them still have an incredible optimism about what's occurring to them through failure. So here's the quote. Some wanna be exempt. They do not wanna excel. They do not wanna exert. They wanna be considered excellent for desiring to be held exempt from all accountability. I took that from Mr. Bo. And this last part we wrote ourselves. And what protects them from all accountability? Their own narrative. And what's critical is the way you construct your own narrative, which is a very Viktor Frankl sort of thing. So what protects them from all accountability? Their own narrative that is not interested in explain, exploring their potential, but it's crafted to keep them comfortable while recruiting every possible excuse along the way. 
So how do we want to live? To paraphrase Alex Ferguson of Man U fame, we want to take responsibility for our own actions, our own errors, our own performance level, and eventually for every result. We still want to be responsible for our failures. There's nothing wrong with being responsible for your failures. We don't have to protect ourselves from that. What we have to protect ourselves from, from is despair. So there has to be the prospect that we're going to get to work and we're going to work to get even better. So that's that's the critical element. But I'm so uh, glad uh, that you're addressing all these different things because, yeah, there's nothing wrong with failing. There's nothing wrong with failing. Yeah, and if I were to capture what you said, it's it's the learning, right? Like plenty of people yeah. fail and don't learn a damn thing. But if you are failing, there's an opportunity to figure out, all right, where can we problem solve? How can we improve? How can we get better? So when we say fail, fail again, the key in those quotes is also, and find a way to improve and get better, take a microscope better. and take a yep. look and get, and get better. So the getting better piece is, is one of the key ingredients. Uh, I want to stay there because you said our leadership team created this value and right. um, talk about how you empower the leaders on your team to shape the values of your program. Well, the thing that's absolutely vital, and I'm not sharing this with uh, without you fully understanding, but uh, I'll say it just because I think I should. Um, what's critical for the leaders is to embrace their role. <clears throat> and what's absolutely vital is if they see something in the culture they don't like, like they see, you know, behind my back, the different players in the roster, you know, not wanting to take responsibility, not wanting to be accountable, in other words, you know, blaming everything in their mother for any failure, any loss. Um, my leaders just didn't embrace that. My leaders wanted to take responsibility for every single failure and loss. Because then what's interesting, if you take a personal narrative that basically embraces the truth, you're in a position to change your place. If your personal narrative is designed to protect you from accountability and pain, you're constructing a personal narrative that's laced with excuses. So all of a sudden, well, of course we lost. I mean, uh, the coach didn't know what he was doing and, you know, he didn't give me maximum playing time. And they have all these different reasons, you know, why we lost. Uh, and uh, then all of a sudden they're not taking any responsibility for basically changing their place for basically winning. So then basically what they're attributing winning to is just, uh, things and forces around them that have nothing to do with them. The sort of people you love to have on your roster are the kids that say, yep, I got to play better. I got to play better. And I've got to inspire the people around me to play better. I've got to hold them accountable verbally on the field for performance. Cause I'll tell you, we did not perform well. I include myself in that statement. And from now on, I'm going to basically work a little harder and I'm going to make sure the kids around me are working harder and we're going to commit ourselves to getting to another level. So the accountability piece is so critical because then you've got a personal narrative that's the truth, which is I didn't play well. I can change that. No one else is in a position to change that. I'm in a position to change playing better. And all of a sudden I am accountable and that's critical. You mentioned that you're really your job is to develop humans and at its core, it's to develop humans. How about leadership? Like, what does leadership development look like in your program? Well, the ideal form of leadership is someone who will lead verbally. And we actually have a great uh, leadership uh, um, academy on campus. 
And actually, I'm, I'm proud to share that the Leadership Academy was established when I was driving uh, with my former athletic director, Dick Bedore, somewhere. We were going to speak to raise money somewhere. And I was sitting right next to him in the, in the car as we were driving there, and he was driving, and he turned to me, and he says, Anson, uh, of all the championship teams, what's the one thing they all have in common? I didn't hesitate. I said, Dickie, they were all well-led by the kids in the field. And he said, so you mean to tell me the most critical element for success in all of these athletic teams you've had is leadership? I said, yeah, Dickie, that's it. He went out and he found a couple donors and he started the uh, Dick Bedore Leadership Academy. And we bring in these people that basically educate our freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors, and all sorts of different levels of leadership. I mean, the first function of leadership is to lead yourself. If you don't have the capacity to lead yourself, you're not going to be in a position to lead anyone else. Because if you're not capable of leading yourself, trust me, no one's going to follow you. So basically, the freshmen have to embrace leading themselves. So that means coming in fit, committing themselves to basically compete in every single practice, to take responsibility and accountability for successes and failures, which is basically about getting their personal narrative of the truth as fast as possible. Then you go on up from there. After you've led yourself, if you truly want to become a higher level leader than just leading yourself, and by the way, the biggest hurdle in all this is leading yourself. Most of us cannot lead ourselves. So we'd be hopeless to lead anyone else. So that's the biggest hurdle. Once you've cleared that enormous hurdle and you're leading yourself, now the challenge is to have the courage to lead at least one other person. Then to basically lead a small society, which is like two, three, or four people. And then obviously eventually uh, to lead the team. So in terms of you, you want to look at a soccer game, um, if you're playing a 1-4-3-3 and you're a, a central defender, uh, you're leading the other defenders around you. So you're leading a small society. Um, a goalkeeper can actually lead his small society, the backs, uh, but also lead the entire team because of the position he's in to see everything that's going on. So the leadership progression is lead yourself, uh, lead at least one other person. Uh, lead a small society, and then lead the team. The ultimate leader has checked all of those boxes and has the courage to lead verbally. Leading verbally, which is when the shit is hitting the fan in a game, to basically call out your teammates and insist they get to a higher level. Because here's what happens, especially in women's athletics, is they resent the people that are holding them accountable verbally. Uh, are your, any of your kids' daughters? Yeah, I got a boy and a girl. Okay, what you're going to discover, the boy's not going to struggle as much with this. But once the girl hits 14, 15, 16, <clears throat> there's going to be a resentment that she will have against the people that try to lead her verbally. And if she is the leader and starts leading verbally, she's going to become hated by her teammates because she has the audacity to lead verbally. Because the other girls are going to think, who the heck does she think she is to tell me what to do? For some reason, we males don't struggle as much with hierarchy. I think it's because we discover as we're growing up, as if a big big kid wants to sit in the chair I'm sitting in, I get up. Why do I get up? I don't want to die. So males understand hierarchy in a way that uh, girls and women don't. And so the real leadership challenge isn't going to be with your boy who understands hierarchy. It's going to be with your girl who will not embrace hierarchy, but will also be very reluctant to open her mouth. 
it gets back to that book that was written long ago by one of those um, uh, software CEOs about leaning in. It's very difficult for women to lean in because they're so afraid of what's generated and the opinions of the other women around them. So one of the hardest sort of leaders to generate in the culture of these women that I lead is to have any one of them to lead verbally because she knows what's going through the minds of all the girls she's trying to lead verbally. And so when you ever get one of those, you have to treasure them. So leadership, and this is another interesting thing. I speak in leadership conferences all the time, and I always warn the people that have hired me, listen, if someone in the group asks me if I can teach leadership, I'm going to say no. So please know I'm going to cash your check for coming in to speak at your leadership conference. But do I believe that I can teach anyone leadership? No. I don't think I can move the leader uh, where you are in the leadership continuum. And so uh, I am not going to be a hypocrite because in my experience, yep, I've recruited some great leaders and they've led. I've given them opportunities to lead and they've grabbed the bull by the horns and they've been great leaders. But I don't think I've really transformed someone that's not a leader into becoming a leader. And I think that's the myth that our leadership uh, uh, programs uh, try to promulgate is that, yeah, um, I can actually teach leadership. No, I think we can lecture on it, but I don't think we can really teach it. You think it's born or you think it's just established by the time that they get to college? I have no idea. I think somewhere along the line, someone has an experience that I guess elect, electric, electrocutes them into leading. You know, it's like, you know, the Spider-Man myth. He's bitten by a spider and all of a sudden he's got all these powers. And I don't know, I'm speculating. I have an English and philosophy degree, so don't believe a word of anything I'm saying. But I would speculate there's a moment or there's a culture that uh, I guess helps you become a leader. And sometimes it might be out of necessity. Maybe in certain environments you have to open your mouth or you don't survive. And so all of a sudden you become a leader because of that, because if you don't open your mouth, you die. And so maybe there's some sort of existential threat that drives you uh, to a leadership position. Um, but I would, uh, you know, I'm hard pressed to speculate, but all I know is that I treasure the leaders I'm given, but I don't take any credit for them because people keep trying to give me credit for all of these amazing women that have come through my program that have ended up extraordinary leaders. Now, I think they came in uh, with this sort of stuff and all I did is I trusted them. Yeah. So yeah, lead my team. You know how I think about this. I've had David Epstein on the podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with David, but he wrote the sports gene and range two wonderful books. And David's become a friend. We live near each other and we collaborate on a bunch of different things. But in his book, the sports gene, he said, no one's ever gone from being slow to becoming fast. And once again, I can see this with eight-year-old boys and seven-year-old girls. You can already see the speed. And of course, they're going to go through puberty and there's going to be some physiological changes. You can get yourself faster, um, but you never make this leap from like slow to fast. And I'm wondering if leadership's kind of similar. It's like if you have some leadership principles or tendencies, they can be cultivated, developed, nurtured. But if, you're, if your wiring is not to step into that space perhaps there needs to be an acceptance of the role that you do play, which leads me to my next question, which is, all right, you're North Carolina women's soccer. You've won 22 national championships over a thousand games. You're the standard in your sport in a lot of different ways. 
when you're recruiting, like I would imagine, and you're at a university that has great education and a beautiful campus. I mean, if you were to ask me like, where are the places I'd love my kid to go? It'd be pretty high on the list. So I would imagine you get to sort of pick a lot of the best of the best over the years. Are you looking for captains? Are you looking for a roster that has some captains and some people that are just going to go and do their job and execute? How do you think about roster construction when you've got sort of a pick of the litter, so to speak? Well, first of all, I'd love to pretend uh, that when I'm recruiting, I'm actually seeking out leaders. But honestly, um, that doesn't go through my mind. If I'm watching an ass kicker on the field that's dominating the games, you know, winning duels and is clearly the best uh, player on the field. And there are all sorts of ways to be the best player. You can be the best athlete. So it references what you're talking about with speed and quickness and vertical jump and agility and all those different elements. That's one way to look at it. Another one is the sort of uh, player that's incredibly gifted technically. So they've mastered the ball. So their skill set is extraordinary. Their decision-making is extraordinary. So they're checking all the boxes. They have an athletic platform. They have a technical platform. They have a tactical platform. And then they have a psychological platform where they compete like there's no tomorrow. The ring that rules them all there for me is uh, a player with competitive fire. So I would rank that above athletic platform, decision-making, and also technical platform. Uh, so I think uh, there are all sorts of ways to, to look at these kids I'm recruiting. I would love to pretend I can see into their hearts and minds and pick out the great leaders. <clears throat> but honestly, it's been a crapshoot. Uh, kids that you know look to be leading at a youth level um, sometimes don't lead at a collegiate level. And some kids that are relatively quiet, introverts, end up becoming extraordinary leaders uh, because uh, <clears throat> they understand the value of basically – uh, not saying many words, but when you open your mouth, everyone's listening. Um, and I think uh, the introverts have a gift there. So they're not garrulous where, you know, 95% of the time what's coming out of their mouth, there's no reason to listen to. They're precise in their instructions. So, um, yeah, what I love to pretend uh, I'm seeking out these incredible leaders. Yeah, I'd love to pretend that. But, you know, honestly, no. And getting back to your leadership thing. The way I look at it is we all live on a leadership continuum from someone that's not a leader to someone who's an extraordinary leader. I think we all fall somewhere on that continuum. Now, do I think that with, you know, leadership training and reading the right books, we can move ourselves down the continuum? Yeah, but I think you're absolutely correct. It's like the uh, the thing from Epstein uh, and the sports gene. Yeah, if you're not fast, you can become a little bit faster. Um, and maybe uh, uh, your friend has a better insight into what you can uh, develop. I think maybe you can impact on your athletic platform, maybe at maximum 10 to 15 to possibly 20%, but that's about it. And I think in the leadership thing, maybe we can use the athletic uh, uh, gene as a, a similar analogy. Maybe you can extend yourself maybe you know, 10, 15, 20% down the continuum but you're not going to transform someone. And I still want to get back to what I was guessing earlier. There might be a moment, there might be an environment that causes you to become a leader. And then for some reason, uh, uh, you can sustain it or take it to a completely different level. And I think those are the people that I would love to be able to recruit consistently. I'm thinking about myself, who you would have never recruited in 
in any sport. Uh, and I know you were into a lot of different sports as a kid. I, you know, the, the athleticism just was not there. But if you ask people that grew up with me, I was short, I was small, but I was kind of fearless in the way I played sports. And I was also not unafraid to speak my mind, whether that was to an adult, a kid, a guy who was six foot six, like I, I did not care. And in some ways I was a great leader, but in other ways, if you put me in an environment similar to those 16 year old girls that you were talking about, where you challenged me and confronted me and made me feel even smaller, I would, I would be toxic and I would, I would argue, I would talk back. I, you know, I, I could be a, someone who could really ruin your whole organization <laughs> because I had influence and I think leaders often have influence. So on one hand, I know that I can influence the people around me. But if I feel as though I'm being um, challenged or treated unfairly, um, I will ruin the team. And so it's interesting because we think of leadership. It's not zero sum and on that continuum. There are all these different qualities. Like I'm the one that will speak up for injustice. I'm the one that will fight till the death. But I'm probably not the one that's going to have the best work ethic on the team and do whatever it takes. I'm probably not the one that's going to be the most disciplined. I'm probably not the one that's going to get in line when I need to get in line. So there's an alpha to me, but that alpha can be... I mean, I have had teachers, I've had coaches, I've had bosses who have to rein me back. And the alpha uh, going in the wrong direction can absolutely become a cancer. And and I will raise my hand and anyone that knows me will say, yeah, like Brian's a bulldog, but I, I don't think you want him in a bad space because that bulldog will start biting and then you got to put the bulldog down. Um, and so I, I think that's a piece. I want to go to competitive spirit and because um, that's another piece I'm, I'm thinking and I've worked with female teams and, and male teams. And to your point, there is a huge difference. I find girls and and women to be very coachable and great listeners and they give you eye contact and they've got a focus whereas the boys are hitting each other throwing sticks and stones and um you know talking shit to each other and and they're sort of it's just a different energy in the locker rooms um but competitiveness so if if you've got this uh idea that girls may be less likely to confront each other and may be less likely to want to challenge each other verbally. But then you've got this competitive cauldron, which is at the core of your culture um, and, and how you sort of build competitive spirit within your program. Can you talk about how you have a competitive cauldron without losing the collaboration or the love or the admiration or all of the great things that come with women and, and female athletes as well? First of all, to address uh, uh, what you uh, spoke about earlier, uh, first of all, you're spot on. <laughs> Women are more coachable. Uh, they are much more coachable. But as a culture, they're more difficult to manage. And a part of the manage management issue with women's teams is they have a tendency to witch hunt, which means if they're jealous of a particular you know, player on the team that's the best player on the team, that basically tries to win every game for your team, <clears throat> everyone witch hunts her. Uh, she doesn't pass the ball enough, you know, uh, she never passes the ball to my daughter. They're always whining, complaining about this all the time. And yet when the score is tied at the end of the game, all the parents that behind this poor, you know, little girl's back is burying her because she doesn't pass the ball to their daughter. They're all dying for her to take the game over and win the game. Uh, so <clears throat> this witch hunting is sort of unique to women's sports <clears throat> because the boys have no issue with the great player. 
we support the great player. You know, after a game, if this guy's carried us for the 10th game in a row, we're all patting him on the back because we know the only reason we won is because this guy's an ass kicker. There are no jealousies. We embrace that sort of thing. So what's really interesting, if we're going to use cliches to describe the different cultures, yeah, women are much easier to coach, but they're much more difficult to manage. Men are harder to coach, but easier to manage. And part of the reason you've probably survived in a male culture is because of um, our, uh, I guess, hurdle, our bar for you to clear, Brian, is incredibly low. So you can be an absolute dick, and I could care less as long as you're contributing in some way. So for us, yeah, you're going to be tolerated within our culture, but you're right. Within a female culture, uh, you're going to be excoriated uh, for all the reasons of, you know, lack of conformity, lack of support and all the different elements. And so all I can say is, Brian, right after this conversation, get down on your knees and thank God you were born a male <laughs> because, boy, you would struggle in that other environment. Um, so you're certainly right about these different elements uh, in gender differences. Um, and you're absolutely spot on because, boy, women are coachable. And I love coaching them for that reason. But gosh, is managing them a, a, a struggle because I can't really see what's going on. And, you know, behind my back, they're excoriating some poor girl that's, you know, one of my best players uh, just out of uh, sheer jealousy. So for me, uh, that's the hidden element in leading a women's team that's you know, such a challenge. And getting back to your competitive cauldron question. Yeah, our girls embrace it. And they embrace it because, first of all, the kids I'm recruiting know where they're coming. So they know because every school that we recruit against is telling them, oh, you're not going to enjoy North Carolina. They've got this thing, the competitive cauldron. All the girls hate each other because, you know, they're all compared with each other. They're all ranked against each other. It's all a matter of, of, of public uh, di disclosure. And you're going to absolutely hate it. And no, they don't hate it because the truly elite players want to know where they stand. And they have no issue with competing. <clears throat> and also the transparency of that inspires them to get to another level. And we don't use it to basically domesticate them. We use it to inspire them. So when I'm meeting with a player and I've got the competitive cauldron numbers in front of me, here's what I'm saying as the leader of this player. You know what? I think you're better than the numbers. If you would just do this, this, and this, you can climb these ladders. And so all of a sudden in this basically, in a way, you know, player conference, is I am telling them what their potential is to beat the numbers. And so now the player sees me as an ally against the numbers. So the numbers aren't used against her. They're used to inspire her to work harder. And I can sit down with any kid on my team and I can tell her the things she needs to do to help her climb every ladder. And then the question is, is she going to do it? Because uh, the truly great players will do it. And you watch them continue to get better and better and better. And it's like this great quote that, I read it again today somewhere. I can't even remember where. Uh, it's talking about uh, uh, Nick Saban. And I'm not going to get this exactly right, but you're going to get the general drift. And the way he describes players is average players want to be left alone. Good players want to be coached. Great players want the truth. My job is to get every player the truth. And that's a part of the evolution of a kid, taking a kid's personal narrative to the truth as fast as possible. So that's my main job. How do I help them? get to the promised land as fast as possible. Our competitive cauldron is objective. This is not a subjective review. If we play a 1v1 tournament, you either won these games or lost them. If you lost them, it's clear. Why? Because you gave us the results, win, loss, tie, of all of your games today in the 1v1. 
So I'm getting data from you on win-loss tie. And by the way, on the first day when we do this for the first time with all the freshmen and we bring them all in and they've just played four 1v1 games and we ask them all just alphabetically, give me your win-loss tie. There's always a discrepancy on the first day. It's a freshman. And so what a freshman has done, the freshman has converted a loss into a tie or a tie into a win. And then my basically director of operations says at the end of doing the math, there's a discrepancy. And then all of a sudden she, he goes to the top of the order and from the A's through the Z's, all right, you know, uh, Adam, who did you beat? And now all of a sudden the girl that clearly cheated is thinking, holy shit, I'm going to be caught in the lie. And then all of a sudden, even before we get to that girl's name, she'll say, I think I may have um, made a mistake. I think, uh, uh, my record was actually this, because for her to say she beat a girl that she lost to um, would be humiliating publicly. And that is the last mistake that's made all season. <clears throat> so here's what the players know. They're being basically evaluated with objective data. And now here's the other thing they know when they sit down with me. I believe in them. I believe they're better than their data. So this is a great way to lead in the competitive cauldron environment. Because here's what they all believe. I believe in you, but there's some work to do. I just want to acknowledge every sports team I've ever been around values competitiveness. And yet almost none of them have created a system to quantify it and to actually say, this is something we truly value and we're going to measure it and we're going to stay with it. So I think for all of us that are listening, if we really value something, let's find a way to measure it. And uh, I want to give you a lot of credit for being able to create that over the years. I want to stay on competitiveness for a minute, though. And I've been fortunate to work in a multitude of sports. And I'm going to use some examples. I've worked with a college football team where they have a quarterback who runs before he passes. And so when the going gets tough, this guy was a bulldog. He would fight for extra yards. But as he's running, he's making the offensive line look bad because they could potentially hold and be out of position. The wide receivers who love to catch the ball now have to block. And the running back who's on campus to run the football is not touching the ball. And so that person is highly competitive, but they may not be collaborative with their team. In basketball, I've worked with teams where there's a guy who makes amazing no-look passes. But when they make those no-look passes, they put their teammates in a position where they're either not expecting the ball to come to them or they're in a position that's hard for them to score. And so it looks good and they look like a great passer, but it's actually not a great pass because it puts them in a position where they can't score. Or there's something called hero ball in basketball where someone will try to just take it on their own and shoot shots and just take over a game rather than making the right pass at the right time. Those people are highly competitive, and I think that they're trying to win. Uh, I've seen it in soccer. I've worked with professional soccer teams, and you have the guy who just is like, all right, we're down 2-0. I'm going to do everything I can to dribble the ball and make a play, and they miss an opportunity to pass the ball through to a teammate, uh, and that teammate puts their hands up and is frustrated, but the person didn't pass it to them because they're trying to win and they're trying to compete. And I could do the same with hockey. The, the hockey player that stays on the ice for an extra 30 seconds because they want to try to help their team win and now they're exhausted, so don't get back on defense, and they cost their team a goal. So you can see competitiveness in all of these different sports backfire if not used in a collaborative way. So I'm curious, you play a team sport. Uh, you've won championships. You mentioned leadership being a key ingredient to champions. I would imagine collaboration and the ability to make each other better is also a key ingredient to champions. How do you blend competitive spirit with collaboration? 
First of all, uh, let me give credit where credit's due, and you're uh, you're giving me an opportunity to credit this gentleman twice. When I was a young coach, uh, uh, Coach Dean Smith, uh, Michael Jordan's college basketball coach, would come up to me, and I didn't know anything about anything, and he would invite me to come watch his practices. I stole the cauldron from him. <clears throat> I'm in there, and he's got these assistant managers underneath each basket recording everything. If there's a 2v2 battle between you know the four bigs, <clears throat> the manager's recording box outs, you know, rebounds, et cetera. If it's a 3v3, 4v4, 5v5 game, winners and losers are recorded. If it's a free throw shooting uh, event, you know, number of your free throw shooting percentage, you know, you're shooting all the detail that you can possibly assemble in, in basketball is being assembled by all of these assistant managers scattered all over the floor. Basically, at the end of the practice, uh, Dean uh, will get the uh, boys together. All the assistant managers of these clipboards are sprinting to the scores table. At that scores table, a head manager with a calculator, because this is pre-cell phone days where you actually had a calculator on your phone. He's actually doing the data. He's punching in the numbers. And then as Dean is finishing with the troops, uh, he's handed a sheet of paper by his manager. And that manager has ranked 12 players in practice based on performance. The first four are read off. There's a celebration. They get to leave and shower immediately. The next four are lined up on the uh, whatever the basketball end line is, you know, free throw line and back, mid court and back, other free throw line and back, other end of the court and back. And the last four, I assume, are running until the end of recorded time. And I loved it. I love the accountability from data of your performance. I love the immediacy of the report. And I love the consequences. I loved it all. I stole it. I soccerized. I took it to a completely different level. So please don't give me credit for this stuff uh, because it, it comes from Dean Smith, uh, my mentor. I love the man and I'm, I'm never going to take credit for something he inspired me to do. And the other thing, it's sort of interesting. You talk about the truly competitive geniuses. Well, uh, that conversation was perfect for me to give Dean Smith credit for the cauldron, but also to give him credit for what he advised Michael Jordan to do. Michael Jordan during one playoff series was scoring 40, 50 points a game and his team was losing. So finally, uh, Jordan called uh, Coach Smith and this was Coach Smith's advice. And of course, he's, uh, you know, he's playing for the Bulls and blah, 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 blah. And his advice to Michael was simple. Michael, use your teammates. Use your teammates. And all of a sudden, this extraordinary competitor starts using his teammates and then they start to go on those championship runs and it was extraordinary so you're right uh there's a point where the truly great competitors have to understand that if you truly want to win it's not about you winning in a team sport it's about the team winning so that's where you need a truly gifted mentor uh, to be in your ear, letting you know that, yep, you're an amazing competitor, but you're not going to win without this guy and that guy. Was it John Kerr that sat on the three-point line? It's Steve Kerr. Oh, Steve Kerr. Okay. So, yeah. So, yeah. You know, drive in, you're triple teamed, you know, kick it back out to Steve Kerr, let him hit the three. Um, and so, yeah. yeah. Is Steve Kerr the alpha? No. But he's going to help the alpha win. Yeah. And uh, I once was asked by a general manager, the general manager had a system and, and they wanted to make sure that they could get buy-in from their players. And he's like, we need to explain to them why 
we are running this system and really let them understand the why behind it. And I said to the guy, this was probably 10 years ago. And I go, okay, well, like how important is your system? If you get LeBron James tomorrow, does it matter? And, <laughs> and he looked at me and he goes, Brian, you think the Chicago bulls ran the triangle offense for Michael Jordan? He said, they didn't run it for Michael Jordan. They Winners. ran it. They ran it for everybody else, right? Yeah, like Jordan's yeah. going to get 50 in his sleep. That's easy. The question is how Jordan can make everybody else better. And so I think there's systems that you can put into place to make your teammates more collaborative. You even mentioned earlier, like, hey, do we celebrate the extra pass? And I'm thinking about my under nine soccer team. Like we are not coaching them enough on making passes um, and, and celebrating those passes and quantifying those passes and rewarding those passes. And so there's that piece to it. And there's a second piece, which is what is competitiveness. And I love the definition, which is competere, uh, which comes from Latin and means to strive with. And if you're just striving by yourself, you're probably not competing unless you're in an individual sport. And so the idea of striving with others, even against your opponents, and what would it look like to competitively make the greatest passes and competitively get back on defense and competitively stay in position and, and to think of it as we're, we're a unit of competitiveness instead of an individual of competitiveness. And that to me is really, really a challenge because it's hard to value two things equally. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to value two things equally. So if we prioritize competitiveness, there may be a little bit of a downside, which is, yeah, maybe they're going to take an extra dribble or maybe they're going to um, sprint back on defense and be out of gas and, and go too hard. Uh, in your sport, it's interesting because we all watch Leo Messi pace himself and then compete, right? And, and so what is like unnecessary uh, effort versus what is full effort and efficient effort. And there's like these complicated pieces that we have to take into account, but we need to be able to value both. And how do we value? I've, I've struggled with this with sports team is how do we not, and even my kids, like you mentioned my daughter, like I don't, she's actually fierce and stubborn and she is a beast. And I don't want to squelch that um, because as you said earlier, our society will do enough of that probably. Um, and so I'm trying to not let that make me crazy. Um, but I also need to parent her. And so she's, she's challenging because she's got this leadership. She's got this ability to stand up. She's got this ability to put herself out there. That's awesome. And it's strength. And yet it goes against what you're looking for from a seven-year-old uh, sometimes when you want them to brush their teeth and eat food and go to bed and go to sleep. So those are the things that I struggle with as a parent. I think I struggle with them as a coach. And I think as humans, it's it's the question of how do we make it an and instead of an or? How do we make it so that we're competitive and we're collaborative? And and I think it's a, it's a massive challenge. It is. Well, first I'll tell you a story and then I'll give you my, I guess, 12 pieces that all have to add together. Uh, one of my favorite stories of all time is, uh, I think, of the summer of 2004. Um, one of the President Bushes has invited us uh, to honor all the Division I national champions. There is this long security line at the White House, and we're standing there. I'm, of course, I've got a, a suit on. My girls are dressed to the nines, and and I can see this long line of all these other athletic teams, and this white-haired guy's fighting his way up the line. And I don't know what he's doing fighting his way up the line. I'm thinking he's going to fight his all way up and, you know, start chatting with the president or something. And all of a sudden he stops in front of me and he extends me his hand. He says, Coach, uh, do you know who I am? I said, I'm sorry, sir, I don't. He said, my name is Pete Carroll. I'm the football coach of the University of Southern California. And we use your book to coach our football team with. 
And I said, you are frigging kidding me. And uh, he used this first book I wrote after the world championship called Training Soccer Champions. And in that book, I talk about the competitive cauldron. <clears throat> and then all of a sudden uh, that fall, or maybe it was a couple of falls later, I can't remember. He calls me up out of the blue and he says, you know, Anson, uh, we're playing uh, uh, the Charlotte Pro Team. And I want to honor you uh, by having you on my sideline uh, while we're playing this team, uh, just because we've learned so much from uh, your uh, coaching methodology. And I was saying, oh, Pete, I'd love to come, but uh, I'm so sorry. We've got a game that day. I can't get away. He says, well, no big deal. I says, but I would love to come study what you're doing. Do you mind if I come out to Seattle and spend a week with you, uh, with you giving me permission to attend everything, meetings, you know, practices and Saturday's Anson, my team sucks this year. We're not even going to make the freaking playoffs. And then all of a sudden he got rid of a linebacker or something, uh, Chandler or something. I can't remember. He got rid of one of his linebackers and apparently a toxic locker room turned into, you know, come by uh, and all of a sudden they're in the playoffs and who are they playing? The week he invites me out, they're playing the Panthers. They're playing the Charlotte team. And I just can't believe my luck. I'm out there and I am attending everything. And I am loving it. He has this thing called Competitive Wednesdays where basically it's the O-line against the D-line in the red zone. It's the number one quarterback against the number two quarterback. It's the D-backs against the receivers. It's the running backs against the linebackers. And boy, is this a violent practice. Everything is being recorded. Uh, and I'm just thinking, this is unbelievable. I mean, this guy understood you know, how to create competition. And so I really respected that. And then so many different coaches have used uh, the stuff, the cauldron stuff. Uh, my brother calls me up one day and he says, Anson, are you watching the hurricane, uh, the pro hockey team in, in, uh, um, in Raleigh? I said, no, 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 I'm driving. He says, well, the coach of the blues is bragging about your book. I said, what? He says, yeah, he uses your book to train his hockey team with. And so basically our book is used all over the place. It's also sold in volleyball because a national coach, Terry Laskevich, who's a former national volleyball coach, has bought the book and uses it in volleyball. So anyway, this book has had incredible notoriety. About 10 years ago, I got a call from someone who says, Anson, have you seen your book? It's selling for 100 bucks on eBay. I said, what? I said, it's out of print. How could it be selling for 100 bucks on eBay? Said, well, whatever it is, it's selling for 100 bucks. I had a whole closet full of these books, and all of a sudden I pull them out, and I'm I'm making a small fortune selling this book. One third of it is outdated, right? So all of a sudden the publisher calls me up. He can't believe how the books are selling. He says, Anson, with your permission, I'd love to republish it, and let's not rewrite it. We won't change a word. I said, well, I have no issue except one third of it is obsolete. Are you sure you want to sell a book? where one third of his obsolete. He says, no one cares. I don't care. Do you have any issue? I said, no, sell it. So this book still sells. I get checks every year. I wrote this book in the early nineties. I get checks to this day that are legitimate frigging checks. I can't believe the publishing industry. Maybe I should have been a writer. So, oh my God, the money that comes in is extraordinary. So to make a long story short, here are the 10 things that for me makes all the difference in the world. You can set this up in any algorithm you like, my algorithm is to give each one of these things equal value. So this is the way I balance it. I stole this from some guy. I'd love to be able to pull his name up, but I'm 72 and I can't. My access to names isn't, a good, isn't as good as it used to be. But this guy talked about, um, he has this company called Caliper that back in the day was hired by any professional sports team to evaluate their considerations for the draft. 
So let's assume the Dallas Cowboys were looking at 10 people to use their four different draft picks with. Um, evaluate these 10. Tell us the ones that we should draft, the ones we should, shouldn't touch. He would go in and each of these 10 people would take a psychological profile. What is this guy doing? He's looking to sort out where these athletes, self-discipline, competitive fire, and self-belief are. So it's a psychological profile. This guy has an 85% hit rate. In other words, if he says take him, 85% of the time he's right. If he says don't take them, 85% of the time he's right. So basically his hit rate is really, really good. I have those as my first three. And then I've added a whole slew. I haven't figured out an algorithm to balance some against the others, but the competitive cauldron piece for me is the ring that rules them all. But here they are, self-discipline, competitive fire, self-belief. And then the three loves. For my sport, if you don't love the ball, if you don't love playing the game, if you don't love watching the game, you're never going to make it. So self-discipline, competitive fire, self-belief, love of the ball, love of playing the game, love of training the game, coachability, grit, energizing, athleticism, and leadership. If you take all of those and you give them all equal value, that will spin out whether or not you're going to become extraordinarily elite. If you look at that and you look at the history of my kids that we have evaluated against those things, those kids that are at the top all have won Olympic gold medals and world championships. And when you say evaluated, are you using like a 10-point system or what are you using to yes. evaluate? What I'm doing is... I am having an open discussion with each kid on my roster and we're discussing them. Unfortunately, I don't have hard data on all 12, but I have hard data on about eight of them. But as a result, it forces the player that's doing a self-evaluation. And again, it gets back to what I was sharing earlier about getting your personal narrative to the truth as fast as possible. They are evaluating themselves on a five point scale in each category. So, Here's a freshman. They're in my office. <clears throat> and I say on a five point scale, five being an Olympic caliber player in this, a full national team player in this, 4.5 being a professional level player, four, a UNC starter level, 3.5, a player that plays in every half, three, a kid that travels, et cetera, down to zero. Where would you evaluate yourself in terms of self-discipline? So what do you think every freshman says? So let me tell you the categories again. Olympic caliber athlete is a five. Professional athlete is a 4.5. Four is a UNC starter. 3.5 is a kid who plays in half. Three is a kid that travels. What does every single freshman player say? Freshman player. Yeah. Ooh. Like I go to freshman versus senior and I'm starting to think of the distinction uh, like my original thought is everyone would just say 3.5, but a freshman might be ignorant. And so I'm going to go higher for a freshman. And then I would think lower as they become an upperclassman. So go ahead. What does a freshman say? Four. Yes. Why? Because they believe that they should be starting. Correct. Then you ask them, <clears throat> what's our standard in the beat test? And the freshman will say 40. What did you get? I got a 28. In self-discipline, I'm going to give you a 
And for those that don't know, beep test is a fitness test, right? To see where their, their fitness yeah, level is. Basically, uh, that's their fitness uh, level. Everyone can come in fit. If you don't come in fit, you've chosen not to come in fit. In other words, you don't have the self-discipline to hit a 4 because to hit a 4 a 40, <clears throat> you got to be frigging fit. And yeah, that part's be- pretty simple, right? You're either you're you're either fit to play the whole, literally to play the the whole game, or if you're not, like maybe yeah, it's a three point five. Maybe we can make that argument that it should be a three point five, but it's not a four. No. So if the standard's forty and you get a twenty-eight, you don't have the self-discipline to start for me. So I'm going to give you a two point eight. In fact, you don't even have the discipline to be traveling with me. So all of a sudden now, this poor freshman is shitting herself. Because she thinks I have a perfect algorithm for all 12 things we're going to talk about. Mm. Now she has a feeling of relief. <clears throat> because the third thing she gets to address, well, first of all, self-discipline, competitive fire is we have data. Because this is at the end of the preseason. So I know how she's done in her 1v1 competitions, in her heading duels, in her half-field games. I have competitive cauldron data. And now, again, she's, again, shitting herself because everyone's kicking her little ass in. She's a freshman. Of course they are. And now she has a sense of relief because self-belief is something I'm not going to touch. So if she thinks she has a five in self-belief, I'm not going to argue it. So I leave self-belief alone because if this kid thinks she's a world beater, I'm not going to interfere with that, even if she sucks. So basically, we have these 12 different categories. If you blend those together, that solves the uh, issue you presented to me earlier. The competitive and collaboration piece, is that what you're saying? That's correct. Because energizing is a form of collaboration. Connection, which is one of the 12 things, is an element in collaboration. Uh, Leadership is an element in collaboration. So basically what we do with our algorithms is we embrace all the different elements that that are going to allow you to impact at the highest level. And the coolest things for us is we roll out the data. We roll out the Mia Hams and the Crystal Dunns and the Tobin Heaths and the Emily Foxes and and basically all the best players of all time. And we show them their data. And then they get to decide who the hell they are. And you can ratchet it up. You can ratchet. All right. So I'm, I know I'm competing the way I should compete and I'm doing this, but I need to be a better teammate like Michael Jordan. And this is an opportunity where I need to figure out how to connect or my energy is not there. So, all right, let's be a thermostat, right? Let's turn up the energy a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. So it gives them direction. And I just want to highlight also, I love the idea of, Hey, they believe they're a world beater. I don't, my job is not to beat that out of them. Um, I want them to still believe in themselves and I want to show them the data on where they need to improve. And that goes back to the confidence piece with failure, which is, you know, I think we make this mistake of thinking confidence and humility can't coexist. I have to be extremely confident if I'm humble, like Mm -hmm. I, in order to be truly humble and say, what do I need to work on? I need to be able to look at myself and say, I need to work on that. And I believe I can get better at that. And that requires confidence and humility. So um, look, coach, we could do this all day. At least I could do this all day. You have to go coach a team and and actually help them, you know, win. And, and you've got a lot more stuff that you have to do. But 
this has been a joy and I, I mean this with all sincerity. Um, I'm sure Dean Smith's looking down on you with great pride <laughs> and admiration. And it's interesting. I've done over 350 of these and of the 350, let's say I've interviewed 60 to 70 head coaches, something like that. This was the only time in all of those interviews. And th- there are some remarkable, wise, incredible coaches. And I probably shouldn't say the only time, but this is the only time I've had this thought during a conversation, I wrote down the word wooden and uh, like, I'm sure John Wooden is someone that you've studied and uh, followed and researched and the way that you're thinking about your program intentionally and the way you're thinking about how to leave it and the way you're uh, able to weave in philosophical lessons and the way you're able to think about this from a human standpoint it reminds me of what I've learned about with John Wooden, who I never got to meet and never got to interview. So hopefully that's the best compliment that I can give you. Um, and I mean it with all sincerity and genuineness. Um, if people want to learn more about the program, about you, if they want to hire you as a speaker, uh, if they want to follow North Carolina soccer, what are the best places for them to be able to do that? Well, I appreciate uh, you allowing me to shill myself. Uh, so first of all, let me tell you the way these things usually begin. So let me address those because there's a a middle piece that uh, we didn't really address that I think is critical. Um, When people ask me, you know, what are the the things that separate uh, you you and your program? I think there there are three things. The first thing is the cauldron. Uh, That's something that I think we do that's incredibly unique. And if they want information on that, Training Soccer Champions is the book to buy. The book that one third of it, you could tear it out and you wouldn't be missing anything. But the two thirds of it, I, I think, do have uh, value still. So training soccer champions, uh, get that book. Um, the other piece that's critical in our program, and, and we've addressed it to a degree, especially when you ask me about Viktor Frankl, is I believe in uh, leading a principle centered life. I don't believe in rules. And this shocks people. I don't have one rule. I don't even have the rule show up on time. I don't think we should have rules that are clearly obvious. Uh, And I don't think we should end up cutting our noses off to spite our faces as our kids are breaking all these different rules. And I will never allow a kid to have any sort of domination over me by breaking a rule I've established behind my back. I'm not going to give them that privilege. If they end up doing something that's stupid, what they've broken is what I think is a promise to themselves, which is I think everyone should live uh, a set of core values. I think we should all live a principle-centered life. So we have 13 core values we expect the players to live by. And twice a year, our players evaluate each other against them because we want to have a culture where you are basically principle-centered. Why? Because I am preparing 17 to 21-year-olds to become adults. Once you're an adult, you don't have your mother and your father making judgments on your moral choices. You basically have to decide what your principle center is and then live by that. And obviously, you might be one of the rare people that still has some sort of spirituality, because right now we're becoming more of a secular culture. And I think because of that, I think what I have to do is to make sure my kids are provided with a guide map on choices, because now they don't have a Sunday meeting or a Saturday meeting where they're being taught principles that can sustain a spiritual level of decision-making that I think is critical for their human growth. And so for me, this principle center is vital. And if you looked at the stuff in these core values, some of them are biblical principles secularized. 
I'm a, a, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I don't pretend to be a particularly uh, devout member of that extraordinary church, but I think uh, their writers like Stephen Covey uh, took you know, the Bible and secularized it. And some of those are in our core values. And if you look at the 13 core values we have, we think it's a pretty good guide for living. So the first thing I think that makes us uh, separate is we compete like there's no tomorrow. The second thing is I believe in, you know, leading a principle-centered life. But I also believe in governing without rules, which is a very chaotic way to govern if you think about it. Um, and then the final piece is I also believe in trying to get everyone's personal narrative to the truth as fast as possible. And how do we do that? With data looking at the 12 different things, having the kid evaluate themselves against 11 of them. The only one they can't touch is coachability. I give the coachability grade basically by myself with them sitting there and I explain why. And they give me their self-esteem uh, grade with me sitting there. They don't have to explain why. They can say I'm a five and I'll write it down and I'll, I'll work that into the average to project to them where they are, but also where they're going with the numbers, the algorithm telling them where they are. So for me, those are the most principle-centered uh, things and the most important parts of my program. So that book, Training Soccer Champions, if you want to know about the cauldron, get that. If you want to know about player development, I wrote a big, uh, I mean, if you've got a daughter, uh, buy this book for your daughter. If you guys read it together, first of all, you become, by the way, you should also read Training Soccer Champions. It'll make you a much better coach because that book I wrote for coaches. But for your daughter, uh, you say she's nine? She's seven. She's seven, seven right. going, on going on 19, though. But all right, well, then uh, here you go. Uh, if she's literate, buy this book for her. She probably won't read it, but you should buy and read uh, The Vision of a Champion. That's a book I wrote for youth players to get to the promised land. And the book you should read, certainly if you want a book about our culture, is The Man Watching uh, by uh, Tim Carruthers. He's a former Sports Illustrated senior writer uh, that was so jaded about covering the NBA, came down with his intention of spending a year with us and writing a book. He spent five years with us and he hasn't left. He loves it here. He's teaching in our journalism school. Um, but those three books should be in your library, I promise you. If you read them all as a soccer parent, you will benefit. And then uh, after you've read all three, call me back. Let's do this again. That sounds great. I'm also going to plug your website, which is AnsonDorrenceSoccer.com. We'll put it in the show notes. And then you are on Twitter uh, at Vision of a Champ, although I haven't seen you post in a while, but you are <laughs> on Twitter as well. And uh, coach, I mean, this was just an absolute pleasure and a joy and I'm honored to get to spend time with you. I'm on Twitter and, and active there somewhat at Brian Levinson and then LinkedIn at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Uh, just really appreciate you and appreciate you sharing all of you with us. And um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, my pleasure. And keep in mind the next time we chat, I am a globalist. I have no issue chatting politics. Um, so uh, if you want to broach that area, I've got definite opinions. Uh, I think the world is under all kinds of existential threats, uh, just like uh, uh, Israel is. And I have no issue discussing those because I think, you know, if there are existential threats out there, even on a, uh, a soccer show, we should be discussing them because uh, uh, those are so much more important than what I'm doing. Well, I don't, I don't have an issue either. And I think um, there's, there's two thoughts there. One, I'm curious about 
Mormonism and we've had Mormon people on the show and I find it to be a fascinating religion. And um, I've had friends and clients uh, that are part of the church. And so you threw that in at the end there. And that is something that is rich and, and deep. And when you said what you said about spirituality and there's actually some research that suggests that we're becoming less philanthropic as a society. And one of the correlations is as we become less I would say formally spiritual uh, people can define spirituality however they want, but to your point, religion is, is going down in this country. Uh, every religion has an element of giving as, as part of the ethos of those religions. And so I've talked about it on this podcast that um, regardless of what you think of religion in general, those are things that we need to be thinking about and talking about. And as it relates to Israel, Certainly, I have my opinions as a as a Jew and someone who has family in Israel. Um, but there's a larger question around democracy and and democratic countries and and how we need to be thinking about the world. And um, that question has always been there, uh, but it's currently present. And then you're on a college campus, and there are a million questions that we need to be asking right now about how we're educating our youth and what the future of academia looks like. And um, yeah, you're in a wonderful position because um, you're 72. And I know my dad who's 74. He's just like, you know what? I'm going to say it like I see it. And one of the beautiful things about our elders is that they can say it and the consequences for them are not the same as a consequence for someone who might be 24 or 44. And so, um, yeah, anytime, even on mic, off mic, like I am, I joke that you'll find me at the, at a wedding. I'll either be on the dance floor with a drink in my hand, having fun, or I'll be in the corner talking about, you know, some existential crisis or someone going through something really tough. So I think we need both in our life. I think we need joy and we need to deal and handle with the challenging stuff. So this is always a platform where I say, look, I don't have any sponsors. I don't have any real consequences other than maybe I lose some clients for saying something wrong, but we need more people that are willing to just speak openly and be willing to say the wrong thing. And I think leadership is sometimes saying the wrong thing and, but being willing to have conviction if that conviction is seeped in curiosity before we are convicted. So um, yeah, if I didn't have to go to my uh, kids Halloween parade, I would have probably just kept this rolling. Cause this is one of my favorite <laughs> conversations I've ever had. Um, but for the sake of them, and you started this conversation about family and your wife. So um, I'm going to go see a bubblegum uh, dressed child and a Washington commander football player. And it's going to be one of the highlights of my day, including this conversation. So thank Brian, you. Good for you. I thoroughly enjoyed it too. So yeah, please have me back on. And yeah, I'm a globalist. Uh, I have no issue discussing politics. So let's, let's go off the deep end together. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. So when I'm meeting with a player and I've got the competitive cauldron numbers in front of me, here's what I'm saying as the leader of this player. You know what? I think you're better than the numbers. If you would just do this, this, and this, you can climb these ladders. And so all of a sudden in this basically, in a way, you know, player conference is I am telling them what their potential is to beat the numbers. And so now the player sees me as an ally against the numbers. So the numbers aren't used against her, they're used to inspire her to work harder. And I can sit down with any kid on my team and I can tell her the things she needs to do to help her climb every ladder. And then the question is, is she gonna do it?